don't want to take this down. Well, thank you, Roxanne, for joining me today. Uh, you know, it's a pleasure and honor to have you on Take This Down. Uh, so thank you again for being willing to have this conversation with me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for even uh, considering me for this podcast. And I'm excited about what we're going to dive deep into today. Well, you know, I have a like an unofficial tradition, but maybe we can consider it now a tradition. I always like to tell my guests why I invited them on the show. Uh, you know, as I mentioned to you, probably off offline, uh, you know, my, my goal is to give people who make the fabric of our community their flowers for everything that they do. You know, a lot, a lot of people may not know the, the work that you're doing in the Diamond Hills community, but, you know, when I know we first met on the Race and Culture Task Force and got an opportunity to work with you and followed your work now five, six years later, and just to see everything that you do was very admirable and something that I admired. And when I thought of different people I wanted to have on, you were immediately one of the first people I thought about. And so I wanted to give you your flowers, but also thank you for what you do for our community, what you continue to do and what you will do as well. Well, thank you so much. That means so much to me. And um, and what, you know, the work that I do in the community also is very meaningful to me. So thank you for taking notice. So let's just get right into it. So who is Roxanne Martinez at her core? <sighs> Roxanne, at my core, um, well, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a sister, an aunt, I'm a small business owner, a nonprofit leader, um, a daughter, and someone who is just looking to serve my purpose while I'm here on this earth. And so you grew up in a Diamond Hills community. How was that growing up? Yeah, so I um, grew up, born and raised in Diamond Hill, which I consider one of the best kept secrets of Fort Worth. Um, it is in the north side, but it is not north side. It is Diamond Hill. And um, so for those that don't know, there's a distinct difference. Um, I grew up in Diamond Hill in the 80s and 90s. My parents migrated there um, a little bit sooner, so they were able to see the transformation of the neighborhood Um to what it is today and what it was when I was growing up, um, a, a place where lots of, um, or many new immigrant families will settle along with legacy families. We are a very tight-knit, multi-generational community that looks out for one another. Um, I grew up as a product of Fort Worth ISD Public Schools. Um, attended all schools in Diamond Hill from elementary to middle school to high school. And for the first 18 years of my life, I probably didn't leave a two-mile radius of wow. my schools. Um, so I grew up right in the middle of Diamond Hill. Um, during some uh, challenging times in the early 90s when there was a prevalence of gang activity going on in the city, particularly in the Diamond Hill community. I remember that growing up. Um, I grew up also as a product of after-school programs, summer programs, the free lunch program. Um, I'm a product of my community and the schools that I attended and everything that that entails. You know, I hear the pride that you have Growing up and being from the Diamond Hill community, can you, you know, talk a little bit about the, the 
the history and the pride that's associated with Diamond Hill. You know, I hear a lot of different communities in Fort Worth. They're very prideful, which I love. You know, I grew up in Arlington a little bit all over all over Arlington, so didn't really have that sense of um, very pride to be from this neighborhood, this community. But talk a little bit about how, you know, the pride that you have. Yeah, I think the pride that I have is shared um, throughout the community. Uh, again, like I said, we're, we're a small, tight-knit community where everyone knows each other. Um, uh, our community takes great pride in our, our Hispanic and Latino roots, our, in our indigenous cultures. Um, one of the things I missed most when I went away to college and was not in Fort Worth, um, and I could not wait to get back to Diamond Hill, was for the just like the smell in the morning of smelling, you know, smelling like um, fresh beans on someone's like, um, you know, uh, oven, a uh, stovetop and weekend smelling the carne asadas and the uh, and hearing like the cumbia music, um, you know, the, lunch yet, so don't, don't, don't <laughs> well, get me too hungry. <laughs> it's it's a it's a community that takes great pride in, in our culture um, and in our family. And so um, I grew up in a community that was very much a family to me. And, you know, and I know you mentioned about the the gang violence that, you know, quite frankly, was rampant throughout the city of Fort Worth in the early 90s. You know, at every point, in, was there ever a point in time uh, growing up you felt like, okay, you know, we're at a disadvantage or we're facing hardships in our community? Or did everything just feel, you know, just feel perfect in, in essence? Growing up um, in my community, I specifically remember losing three classmates to gang violence in middle school. Um, that was something hard to comprehend as a young student. Um, I knew then, um, and just by things that I would see in the news or a few opportunities that I did leave the community to go across uh, town somewhere, I realized then that there were some things that were not perfect about my community. I knew I knew that there were some things that we were lacking in our schools. And I knew that th that things were not great. But ultimately, I loved the community that I was surrounded by and didn't know anything else for those first 18 years of my life until I decided to venture off to college. And you ventured off to college. Not only did you venture, you went far to University of Florida and Gainesville. Bill Gators. You know, how did that come about? Well, it's interesting because um, I can dissect it all now that at the time I... Um, I was looking for an opportunity to get away from some of the things in my community. Um, essentially, what I now know is that I was running from some emotional and generational trauma and some adverse childhood experiences. Growing up as the oldest of five siblings um, and the first to, to graduate high school and the first to go off to college, I can tell you that it is not easy at all. Um, to be the first, you know, in your family to achieve those things. And I also knew just because um, speaking with educators who really invested in me, um, people like uh, my journalism teacher, Mrs. Funicello, my high school coach, Coach Rob, um, our intervention specialist, Mrs. Hobbs, and speaking with those adults who really, really invested in me, they, they told me, um, that I really needed to get away to focus, to focus on myself, 
um, to also avoid the pressures of family and cultural expectations. And essentially, I went as far as I could. And um, the University of Florida was one of 10 schools that I applied to all out of state. And um, it was my top pick at the time and um, uh, had opportunity to attend on scholarship. And ultimately, it was one of the best decisions that I ever made. Um, but I can tell you that when I arrived at the University of Florida in Gainesville, um, not knowing a single person on the campus and not having stepped a foot on that campus before the day I was dropped off was a, an experience that um, will really make you grow up really quick. No, I bet. I bet. And, you know, I'm going to I want to touch a little bit on that before. Before then, you know, you mentioned being the first to graduate high school and go off to college. Did you feel like a sense of like pressure that you had to set an example for your siblings or was it a more like a relief that you're getting away? Um, it was both. I, I think for me, the pressure of of being the oldest um, was something that I always carried with me. Um, also, just being kind of identified as a leader in, in school, as one of our top performing students, that also had pressure, um, you know, applied pressure to me as well. And that having to perform, um, I did feel a sense of obligation to not only my school community, but to my family. I grew up at a, you know, attending a Title I school. I'm a proud alumni of Diamond Hill Jarvis High School, but I clearly remember growing up at that campus um, with threats of, of shutdown if we didn't perform better on our state test. Um, I remember those conversations vividly. I remember classmates who really struggled. Um, and here I was, a, a, a high-performing student, um, with an opportunity and had been identified through programs, um, federal TRIO programs like Educational Talent Search and uh, TRIO programs, TCO Upward Bound, that had really given me an opportunity that not all of my classmates had. And so I felt a huge obligation and weight on my shoulders that I needed to go away and study um, and come back with some level of success um, to help my family and to help my community. That's good. That's good. And so you're in Gainesville, University of Florida, what, 60, 70,000 students, you know, and how was that adjusting from, you know, being in a very close-knit, tight family community to being another number? Yeah, as, you know, when people say culture shock, it was a huge culture shock for me. Um you know, there, but there were a lot of things I loved about it. I was at the time going for sports reporting and sports management, where initially my majors, great place to be right. if you want to yeah. study sports. Um, so I had a fan, fantastic time doing that. But, you know, I also sought that tight knit family and sense of community that I always had. And I was very lucky that I found that early on um, in a Latina sorority. So I did pledge Lambda Theta Alpha um, sorority while I was there. And that was my family away from from home. That was my support system. Um, shout out to my sisters who helped me get through those, you know, tough nights and uh, uh, final exams and um, those that, that came before me um, and, and helped me navigate the systems of, you know, university life. And also that sorority opened up the doors to for me to build my leadership skills, get involved on campus. I ultimately, you know, served in leadership capacities within the Multicultural Greek Council, but it also gave me an opportunity and a sense of 
uh, service and where I was able to lead service projects. And then I began to know and see clearly when I got back home to Fort Worth or wherever I settled, like this is what I'm going to be doing. So armed now with the, the pride of Diamond Hills, uh, the education from you know, Florida, the, the, the tight-knit relationships and bonds you developed with your sorority sister, but also um, the experience, the leadership experience. You know, did you know what you wanted to do next? I didn't. I, I mean, it's. I tell uh, nieces and nephews now that are, are graduating or in college, um, you know, it's hard as a 21. Just, I think I just turned 21 years old when I graduated college. And um, I, I traveled a little bit to do a few internships. I learned quickly what I didn't want to do, what, you know, what I really wanted to do. Um, I ultimately landed on marketing um, and I moved back to Fort Worth. I did a few internships uh, with the Southeastern um, Conference in Birmingham, Alabama, and then made my way back to Fort Worth just because that's where my family was going to be. And I couldn't convince them to move to Florida. So... <laughs> I moved back home um, and started using my marketing skills with um, some local nonprofits and then um, some corporations. But as soon as I got back to Fort Worth, I immediately um, got involved in my community. Was that ever a question or doubt that's what you were going to do? You know, some people say, I'm never going back home or I'm not going back to the community I was raised in. Was that ever a thought for you or did you know, no, this is what I'm doing? Um, I think it was a process. It was a process. I was in Gainesville for four years, and I remember sometimes thinking I'm never going back home. Um, but through a process of, one, healing my, myself, learning about myself, learning about my culture, still feeling that very strong sense of obligation of returning to my family and my community um, to, to help elevate them, that really drew me back to to Fort Worth and to my family. And so as soon as I got back to Fort Worth, I signed up to be a reading tutor at a local elementary school. Um, I started serving as a coach and a mentor with the Diamond Hill Northside Youth Association um, and really just got involved in, in like my neighborhood association and um more of like civic engagement. There were there were things that I had realized at, in Gainesville that I could come back and do to better my community. And speak a little bit about that. What was some of the things you, you, you took from Gainesville to bring back to your community to help? You know, um, being a student at the University of Florida was um, the first time that I really learned um, how I could reach out to community leaders to make impact, um, participate in, in different marches and rallies, but also, you know, make that direct contact with those that are representing you, um, those that are elected to represent you and how much my vote meant. And so um, one of the things that I always wanted to do was come back and be involved with young people because I, I wanted to be that mentor or that person that I needed and that I found in some of my teachers. Um, I know that youth find their mentors or their role models in a variety of different places. And so one, I wanted to come back and be a role model to my, to my younger siblings, um, to um, other family members and to those young people in my community. You know, and, and you may have thought of this and this may have been intentional or not, but you know, when you went back into your community to try to provide, uh, not try, but providing mentorship and, and someone to look up to, 
did, did you ever think about the, the students who were killed when you were in middle school who didn't have the opportunities or the ones who, you know, got lost along the way as a, as a motivation as to why you needed to be there? Yes, I, I maintain really deep um, connection to my community. Um, a few of my classmates who were killed due to gang violence, um, I still see their parents in my community. I still see them around. I still talk to them, check in with them every now and then. Um, I had really close friends that were impacted by um, gang violence. Um, I had a friend whose brother was killed. And I see the pain that she still deals with even years later. And so those are things that I constantly think of are on, on, on my mind when I am back serving in my community. And then I also think about the students who may have not had that teacher reach out to them to say, you know, the teacher that pulled me aside and said, Roxanne, you have the potential to go to college. And I remember saying, college, what is that? Um, not every student may have had that. And so I just seek opportunities where I can help youth identify their own potential. And so you're involved in the, the Youth Athletic Association in other capacities uh, with the civic engagement. You know, what was the turning point to where you said, OK, I've been doing a volunteer. I'm doing this. Maybe it's time for me to run for public office. Well, you know, I had some major things happen um, along the way between college and now. Um, as I said, I, I got back into my community, started volunteering uh, with the Youth Association. That's where I ultimately met my spouse, um, Gerald. Uh, him and I were both serving as, as uh, volunteer coaches and mentors. And um, we had decided like that was going to be our work. Like we were going to invest in the youth in our community. And um, really early on in our um, um so really, really early on, I was 30 years old and had a week. I just learned, found out I was pregnant with our daughter um, within the week. I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. Um, completely devastating diagnosis. No one in my family had suffered or impacted by breast cancer. So it was a complete shock. Um, <clears throat> I felt like we were just starting our lives together. And I was also like building, you know, my way up the career ladder at the time. And um, then just received this really devastating news. And um, at the time, 12 years ago, there was not a lot of research with about pregnancy and cancer. And so I was really forced to rely on my faith. And I did. I did a lot of research. I did as much research as I could. Um, about the disease and my condition and being pregnant and what the treatment might do to uh, my unborn child. But I also knew that <clears throat> the type of cancer I had was very aggressive, <clears throat> um, disproportionately affects African-American and Latina young women, and was ultimately told by my physician that if I did not do treatment, that I would die within a year. Oh. And... I made the decision, very difficult decision, to pursue treatment while pregnant. And so I did seven rounds of chemo and two surgeries while pregnant and 
was definitely one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life. But again, I go back to this sense of community. When I think about those hardest days of my life, the, the people that surrounded me, my family, my friends, my uh, sorority sisters nationwide, my community, the way they rallied around me, other survivors um, also inspired me. But the way they rallied around me and uplifted me during this time, um, as I leaned on my faith, that got me through. Um, ultimately, I ended up going into early labor at 32 weeks and delivering my daughter, Serenity Milagros. While I was completely bald and severely weak from the chemo treatment, um, she was born strong and healthy and with a head full of hair. And when she was born, I knew that one, that I had won my fight, no matter what happened after that point. But during this journey, I, my faith was tested like beyond what had ever been tested. And through this journey, I really felt that, God, if I make it, like you must really have purpose for me. And um, I vowed then, like, if I make it, God, like, I will live out my purpose, whatever that is, whatever you have for me. That's, I, I'm speechless because, you know, that it, that's a lot. And, you know, it's, uh, I just, I can't find the words to say just, but other than, wow, you know, the, the strength that you had. The fight that you had, you know, to not only persevere, persevere through those that 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 fight, but to come out on the other side and you know give God the glory, the honor, but also the commitment to continue to do that purpose. It's it, it's admirable. You know, we we all go through you know different circumstances, but you never know how you're going to respond to it. You know, you can turn your back and run. You can you know lose faith or you can stand tall and continue to believe and, and you chose to continue to believe. And I think that's, that's awesome. And, you know, you're, you're, you're as strong as, you know, there's generally no words that I can say, but, you know, uh, obviously wanting to fight for, you know, your daughter, but also fight for yourself. Uh, what kept you just, you know, in the fight in there? Cause I imagine there would be ups and downs along the way. Yes, there were, um, a huge array of ups and downs. Um, one being that I uh, was terminated from my job during this process. And I, like I had mentioned before, it was um, climbing the career ladder probably at a, at a point where um, I was feeling very successful. Um, so I was terminated from my job. And then I was forced to also navigate um, this journey once I became uninsured. Um, that was a real eye-opener for me. That was something that I learned and I and I journaled about that when <clears throat> I'm on the other side of this journey, that I will help people in my in, in these circumstances navigate through these systems, um, through systems that can be really really hard for um, low income you know marginalized populations and. 
and I did as soon as like I as soon as I um, beat cancer um, shortly after I gave birth I finished treatment um, a few months later I was declared you know cancer free no evidence of, of disease um, and all um, since then almost 12 years since then have been cleared um, so thank God for that but I vowed like I will do whatever I can to help again, to help my community, the community who rallied around me um, during this time, to help them navigate whatever it is. They're, they're, they're tough days, they're tough situations. Um, but it was really then that I really saw firsthand um, some of the health disparities in, in our community. Um, and again, like I, like I mentioned earlier, I knew some there were some disparities within our schools. Now I'm seeing another level of it through the healthcare system. And I'm really, really just starting to see how all these systems intertwine and how they work and, and how it can be a disadvantage to, to certain communities. And so um, once I was declared um, cancer-free, I... Um, started a support group for, for young women uh, facing breast cancer um, and really sought out, you know, opportunities to bring resources like mammograms um, to our community through mobile health units. Um, had, you know, organized lots of different uh, health fairs and health resources where we're bringing in these much needed resources to the community as well as educational resources. And, um, I really kind of got me involved with a lot of other work that I started doing within the Hispanic Women's Network of Texas, within the Fort Worth Hispanic Chamber, uh, Hispanic Chamber, and, um, you know, lots of other groups where I was able to really bring in resources and systems of change um, for my communities and other communities like mine. One thing that I always say, though, um, and, you know, amongst the cancer community, a lot of us survivors will say, like, once you beat cancer, you can do anything. And it's not just because we feel like we are badass. <laughs> I, well, you are. <laughs> you are. Well, I, I credit it all again um, um, to my Lord and, and Maker. And I say, you know, it's not um, what I went through, the, you know, how I went through the journey. It's the fact that I really learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And um, And again, when I go back to those days and I journaled them and I still and I still have that journal and I refer back to often in the days when I'm going why am I doing this <laughs> and I journaled like I vow to live out my purpose each and every day and the purpose that you have for me and so um that may change you know I realize that that may look different in different days and different times of my life and um you know so I did a lot of work around health disparities and um that also fed right back into the school systems where I am today, serving again with youth and realizing that, hey, they, you know, just like um, women going through breast cancer needed these resources, we have youth now that need mental health resources, that need, you know, um, nutrition and education information. All right, because I imagine, you know, when you were in middle school having to deal with the, the, the trauma, there might not have been resources. and. You compound just the natural things that, that children or youth go through. You add that to the COVID pandemic that they just went through and they need help and, you know, they need resources. And what are we doing as uh, as adults or the business profession, uh, I should say the business professionals to help them with, you know, forget those resources? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, no one 
could have predicted like the effect that COVID, the impact that COVID would have had. And when I go back to, you know, thinking specifically, specifically of my community, the Diamond Hill community, where we lost over a hundred community members to COVID um, and were significantly impacted and are still being impacted um, by the ramifications of COVID. I think of the lack of resources that our community has, um, even during the, you know, the, the peak of, of COVID, um, when we were lacking um, COVID testing sites and then later on COVID access to COVID vaccination sites and how I joined other community members to advocate for those things to be brought into our community. And it's the same thing that we have to do now with our children. Our children need um, mental health resources. They are needing, um, we, we are just seeing um, lots of different issues come out of out of COVID and they're needing that social emotional um, assistance as well. They, they're needing um, those mentors. Um, we've got to get our business community back involved in our schools. I know when things were shut down, um, you know, we, we were not allowed to go into schools, but we are coming out of that now and we need our business community to support our schools and our teachers like never before. All right. And so you, you speak about the COVID, you know, how was it running a campaign during the middle of the pandemic? Well, I got COVID twice during my campaign. Um, but as I stated again, as a cancer survivor, you learned that like nothing's going to stop you. Not when you're living your purpose. Um, I put my name on the ballot and a week later I got COVID. And so that was the first huge, you know, hit. Um but one thing that, you know, my family knows about me and my husband um, often says about me is like, you know, you're you'll never be outworked like you, it doesn't matter. COVID, no COVID. Um, I took care of myself and then I got right back out there in the community. And that was, you know, part of the reason that I did get COVID multiple times um, because I felt a need to be out in the community. I saw the need. I saw what resources we were lacking. I know what I needed to go out and advocate for and bring to the community. And so I was actively involved in those kind of um, outreach events. And um, but it was it was very different than I know uh, other campaigns I had worked on. Going door to door was a challenge. Um, people were afraid to open the door. Um, we're also in a different generation where people screen calls, they, you know, don't answer calls. Um, I had to really um, be innovative and creative in how I, re you know, reached people, um, whether it be through social media, which I did a great deal of. Um, fortunately, I have a background in, in that with, you know, um, my company, Rockstar Marketing. Um, I did utilize that. I also um, was out out there talking to people, and where I found the biggest um, the biggest thing to be beneficial was the one on ones. I know a lot of times in campaigns you want to speak to the masses and you want right. to speak to people um, in large groups because that's where you can get the biggest bang for your buck and, and you know um, make it well worth your time. But what I found was the one on ones with people were one what they were really needing. They needed someone to talk to one-on-one. -on -one. They needed to be educated about the issues that were going on. Um, and that it was just as worthy of my time to spend an hour talking with my neighbor or a community member or a stakeholder um, than it was to talk to 100 people at once. Well, because you're, you're empowering them and now they're going to talk to one person, 5, 10, 15, 20, or however many. And so I could, I could see the benefit. And, you know, I would say you probably had a competitive advantage, you know, being from the community, from 
childhood all the way up. Did you believe that that helped you? I do. I think it did give me an advantage in, in relating to people. Um, you know, something that I, a piece of advice that I had been given um, that I completely ignored was um, to not to not focus so much time on the non-voters and to go really after the people who had uh, strong voting records. Well, when I sorted through lists and looked at the data, if I would have done that approach, if I would have used that approach, I, I would have essentially left out my own community, um, which does have tend to have low voter turnout. And so instead, I just flipped that strategy on its head and said, why are, why are people not voting in this community? And went and talked to them one-on-one -on -one and, and went door-to-door -door and calls and texts and, um, and also reaching them through young people, you know, young people and reaching their parents and their grandparents and their aunts and uncles and, and bringing them to the table and saying, why, you know, I, I see that you're registered to vote, but you've never voted. Why? And, and the, the answer I kept getting over and over was, why should I? Um, there's no one to represent me. There's no one that looks like me. There's no one that knows our issues. And so I was able to say, here I am. I went to the same school in this neighborhood. I went through these schools. Um, my kids are now in these schools and I'm here to represent our community. And so, yeah, I did. I think that was an advantage. And then also I think another advantage was the youth that I had on my um, campaign. Um, while others might have gone out and got professional um, consultants, I had two young people that helped run my campaign. A young lady uh, helped run um, a field team and a young man um, still in high school helped run my digital campaigns. Wow. And so when I say that my campaign was really, um, it was started focused on young people, led by young people, and will always be about uh, young people. Prior to running for school board, you know, did you have an idea what the issues that you thought we're going to be facing our public education or and then versus when you actually was elected and you got to look behind the curtains. Yes, it was completely different than what I thought. I had been attending school board meetings for several years prior to deciding to run. Um, and I remember the, a lot of the issues that were at the table um, and being, like I said, a product of Fort Worth ISD, I, I was familiar with, with some of the issues that our students and educators face. But when I actually gained a seat at the, at the table as a trustee, you really learn um, about all the, the inner workings of, of public education. Um, and I happened to come in, um, I happened to join the board at a time when public education is under attack. It really is. And so beyond the everyday issues that our campuses and our students face, um, beyond the you know lack of resources and facility issues and just different needs that our students have, we are also now facing a time where certain groups of people and, and, and leaders um, are really attacking the public education system. Um, when you have groups of people that are looking to take funds away from our public schools that are already struggling, and before COVID they were struggling, coming out of out of COVID, you know, we're struggling. Um, but when they're, when they're trying to introduce all these new um, systems that will essentially hurt public schools, that's a whole nother level that we have to look at. I also learned on this side of the table that there are some things that 
are not within our realm. So there are things that, you know, I thought, well, I'll go in and make a difference in, on this um, particular issue. And then you realize that, hey, you know, um, our hands might be tied, that that's, that's actually dictated by um, the state, by our legislator, legislature. So um, it's been a real eye-opening experience for me just to learn um, the inner workings of public school system and how we can best advocate for our students. Um, I am, I still consider myself very fortunate to be, to have a seat at the table and to represent and be the voice for my communities. Um, but I've also learned that we need to be advocating at the state level as well. So with that, we hear the bad, but what are you hope for and encouraged about what you see within our public uh, education system? What keeps me hopeful every day is every time I go to a campus, I spend a lot of time on campuses. I spend a lot of time attending our students' extracurricular activities and events, whether it be soccer games to fashion show uh, to a dance showcase. I see all of the potential that we have in our public schools. I see the thousands of thousands of students who just need that our support to be the next professional, whatever it is they want to be. I see that potential every day on campuses from, you know, pre-K or from our pre-K students to our high school students. Um, I was fortunate last week to be part of a celebration of a um, young Latina student at Damiho Jarvis who was just awarded a $25,000 scholarship from Girls Inc. National. Wow. And when I think about what, what that means for her and her family, um, their family was so significantly impacted by COVID that I don't even know how she maintained the grades and all the activities that she's been a part of. But to see students like her just excelling and knowing that education is going to change her life, public education will change her life and the, the life of her family and everyone that comes after her. Every day when I'm on campuses and I see those students that remind me of myself, I think about how public education changed the trajectory of my life, changed my family's life. I have nieces and nephews that are in college today because I was able to help them um, navigate, you know, help navigate them a little better than than when I was a student myself. And so I see all the potential every day on our campuses and I remain hopeful that uh, public education is the way um, it is a great equalizer in life and that many of our students will use it and use that education as an opportunity to change their life. You know, one thing I'd like to ask my guests is, you know, when you, you retire 30, 40 years from now and you're, you know, what do you want your legacy to be? First of all, my husband says, I will never stop working. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's probably right. <laughs> yeah, he says, you will never stop working, will you? Um, you know what what I want what I want to be known for and what I want my legacy to be when someone thinks about Roxanne Martinez, I want them to think that I spent my life doing God's work, living out my purpose, and making a positive impact on others. I recently attended a graduation ceremony where a um, valedictorian gave me a shout out and I was surprised. I didn't know it was coming, but it meant so much to me 
to hear that I had made that impact in his life because I know that he's going to go on to be successful. And if I could just, if I just had a small part of, in that and in, in changing his life through mentorship, that means everything to me. And that's what I want to be known for is helping others live better lives. Oh, that's great. That's great. You know, I, I know we're at the end of our time, but thank you for this conversation. There's a, a lot of things that I'm personally going to take down and, and keep with me. You know, the work that you're doing, the work that you're going to do. I just want you to know that I'm here. My firm is here to provide whatever resources, whatever help we can. And thank you again for joining me. Thank you again for having me here. Good luck with your show. I'm really excited about everything that you're doing and that your firm is doing. Thank you for supporting the community in this way. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for watching today's episode. If you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to subscribe. Otherwise, look for us anywhere you find podcasts.